This programme is brought to you by The Old Market. Visit theoldmarket.com or find us on Twitter at Tom Venue. Welcome to episode three of Wilder Stories, a new podcast series from the Old Market. This evening's tales are being recorded for release in podcast form in the next few weeks. Please make yourself as comfortable as you can, and for the next hour, we dive into the colour green. Green is the shade that earths the palette. To us, it means nature first. So it feels wrong that for thousands of years, us humans glue it so firmly to negative emotions. Envy, nausea, naivety. Tonight we begin with live music. In the wind. 
Thank you, greenness. Before we go on, we take a chance to ground ourselves with some context, some history, and a voice of clarity to tell us something about the colour green itself. Here again is Alexandra Losker, who knows more about colour than anyone else I've met, to walk us into the green. Green is a difficult colour, it's a complex colour, and we have a very ambivalent relationship with it. On the visible spectrum, it is between yellow and blue, and um, I was here for the blue event, and blue is by far the most popular colour of most people. Yet green, by comparison, is deeply unpopular, and, and until Newton sort of, you know, put an order to the visible spectrum, people didn't quite believe that green should be so close to that wonderful colour blue. And in cultural history, it has both very positive and very negative associations. Um, but here's some positives. So green stands for nature, of course, youth, rebirth, spring, gardens. And green, of course, today means having awareness for the well-being of our planet. It can even mean love. In, in Germany, in the Middle Ages, there was a cult, a love cult called Minna. And uh, Mrs. Minna was always dressed in green. Anything to do with love was green. And the great color theorist, another German, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, thought green was the best color for interiors. So you should paint rooms where you want to feel comfortable uh, green. So studies and libraries in, in particular. And in Weimar, he painted his rather charming sort of, um, getaway house, his garden house, entirely green. In the Islamic world, green is a holy color. But then there was also the negatives, of course. Uh, we've mentioned envy. There are uh, green beasts in the Middle Ages. There are green dragons, green monsters, sea creatures that are green, nasty fairies. The devil himself is green in the 15th century, not, not red or black. Poison, in some cases, still is identified by the color green. So these are just you know, a few of those examples. The abstract painter Mondrian hated it, thought it was a terribly cold and static color and never used it in his art. So why is it so difficult? Well, I think it's partly such a difficult color because it's so hard to produce good greens. Green is a secondary color, and that means it can and frequently is made from yellow and blue, a combination of the two. And as soon as you start mixing, and we're now sort of in the pigment and paint world, as soon as you start mixing, you lose purity. You run a risk of sort of losing brilliance of, you know, the more you mix, the duller your paint becomes. Green is not present in cave paintings. And it doesn't really exist in some of the earliest concepts of color that we have, because most of these only distinguished between light colors and dark colors and didn't really sort of specify any particular colors. However, there is an ancient concept. It's at least from classical times, was possibly even known in Mesopotamia of the four humors or the four characters. And uh, that led to one of the earliest sort of color concepts. So colors were associated to the four humors. And these humors are basically bodily fluids, what is in you. And if they're out of balance, if you have too much of one and too little of the other, you may be a of a particular character. And here green features. So the four humors are blood, 
that's of course red, so if you have too much of that, you are a sanguine person, you are uh, an outgoing, a passionate person. If you have too much yellow bile, you may be choleric or short-tempered. Uh, if you uh, have too much green phlegm, green, then you may be phlegmatic, relaxed, calm, careful, uh, controlled, even-tempered. And the other one's black, black bile. And if you have too much of that, you are melancholy or a pessimist. So, as was mentioned already, we are surrounded by green. Green is nature, at least here where, where we live. Our landscape is green, foliage, trees, you know, bushes, vegetables. <laughs> it's what we associate with, it's what we associate with the outdoors. So we look at this world of ours, and unless you're looking at the sea or an urban landscape, what you mostly see is green, and blue in the sky, yet it's these two colours that are so hard to make and that are not present in the earliest pictures that we have produced, we humans, in cave paintings. So I'd like to take you through the greens that there have been. To get you into the mood, I give you 15 shades of green from an 1814 nomenclature of colours in the natural world. Uh, it's this book that Charles Darwin took with him on his beagle voyage in order to you know, help him identify the natural world and classify it. So here we go. Celandine green, mountain green, leek green, blackish green, verdigris green, bluish green, apple green, emerald green, Grass green, duck green, sap green, pistachio green, asparagus green, olive green, oil green, siskin green. Thank you, Alexandra Losker. Eat your greens, they told me, over and over again. You need five a day. Clearly, I ignored them. But that's because English greens were a lot less enticing way back when, boiled to death. Times have changed, thank God. We finally learnt to steam or microwave or eat raw. Here's Jan with at least one of your five. Uh, this is a true story. Jonathan Sanderson was a writer, published author, planning his sophomore release. He was suffering from crippling writer's block, which he blamed on being cursed at the supermarket by an old man who attempted to steal the avocado out of Jonathan's hand. Jonathan's wife, Amy, though sympathetic, was acutely aware of Jonathan's erratic mental health. The pressure of fulfilling expectations and deadlines could fold him like a camping chair. So she went for the picking holes approach. So again, Amy asks, tell me exactly what happened. Right, okay. So I was checking the firmness of the last has to smash it on some sourdough and an old man shuffles over to me like a one-handed croupier and tells me I'm handling the avocado wrong and proceeds to snatch it out of my hand, puts it in these baskets and heads to the reduction shelf. I was taken aback. I said to myself that this aggression would not stand and I stored it back when he was distracted by the half-priced cottage pie. I exit through the checkout, and at the door he's waiting for me, points a skinny malevolent finger at me and says, For your crime you will be cursed. Cursed to obsess over what you covet. 
And were there any witnesses to this? Amy asks. I know you don't believe me, but what's more likely, Jonathan said, that an evil old man with supernatural powers cursed me, or that this is all in my head and I'm having a psychotic episode? I'm not saying it didn't happen, but please get help. I can't help you. See a professional, Amy said, and leaves. Jonathan stays fixed at his computer screen. With a thousand-yard stare of an Easter Island head, Jonathan wonders how therapy could help. But quickly, that thought dissipates and converges to thoughts of him lying on a couch, being psychoanalyzed by a six-foot bearded avocado. <laughs> During a nightmare, Jonathan dreamt of a future crippled by a global avocado war. Cities are raised and smolder. Jonathan traverses central London on a rusty, rusty bicycle he found speared through a little window. All supplies looted, the few people he comes into contact with are junkies, cutting guacamole with pulled broccoli and serving it to jittery, manic teens. Jonathan woke up, sweating. Careful not to wake Amy, he headed downstairs and opens up his laptop, searches for any fruit pornography, and pleasures himself to an article he found about avocado production affecting the Moloch butterfly population. As days go on, the routine becomes identical. Tries to write, tries to sleep, can't write, can't sleep. Doesn't write again, doesn't sleep again. Around four months after he claimed to be cursed, Jonathan bought an eight-foot paddling pool and filled it in the living room. Using a discarded pallet he found in his neighbor's garden, Jonathan moved two slats, halving them with a saw and carving their edges until sharp and angry enough to pierce his body. He washed himself and drew the living room curtains. He entered the paddling pool and with conviction forced the pallet slats into his torso to suspend himself while only his legs were submerged. Six to eight weeks, he said, I'll be a tree. Later that day, he bled out. After these events, Amy wrote about her experiences with Jonathan and his curse and the pressures he felt to write and achieve. Her book was picked up by Hollywood studio and would be adapted into a movie. The initial focus group's reviews were very poor, so the film was altered and it became Silver Linings Playbook, an award-winning romantic comedy about love conquering mental illness. The end. The rain wakes them up the first full day of their weekend away, branches flailing at the guest bedroom window. Hen gets dressed into countryside clothes. Moss pours two shots, raises one eyebrow. We're here for the air, Hen says. So Moss sinks both. We're getting away from work, not drinking. Downstairs, hens turn to the road at the bottom of the garden, eyes drifting in and out of raindrops, metronomic. They should go for a walk. It's still the country, she says. Two wet moss gargle through a mouthful of unchilled own brand lager. Hey, where does your mum keep her mixers? I haven't lived here for 10 years, she says, performing the putting on of her coat and purposefully not looking at the cupboard where they're stashed. She manages six circuits of the garden in rain, weaponized by wind that wheels around her, basically speed walking to generate some heat. Moss, slumped in her window seat, toasts her with a cocktail each time she flashes past. Something's gotten into the garden and chapped black pellets in patterns all over the lawn. She used to go up the hill behind the house, this hill with its rocks like grinding teeth and yellowing fields. She liked how small the house looked. It made escape feel almost inevitable. Moss is holding a clumsy sandwich up now in the dark of the kitchen window. She's not sure if he's taunting or offering. 
That night she sneaks only a few swigs of vodka while he's in the toilet and thinks about mum on her cruise now coming to an end. Her copperish tan, the questions she'll ask, jobs, then money, then when they're breeding. Are you happy, she asks, when he emerges flushed and singing. I'm absolutely spatchcocked, he grins. The rain has not stopped, not once, is unstoppable. But here they are, staggering against the incline under one sky-filling cloud. Also, they are, to be fair, fucking monstered. Dragging moss from the cushions required negotiations, you could at least be a bit funny, said. Hen took the glass of smooth and dark from his hand and downed it in a gulp. Now, a hip flask changes hands every ten steps and they have to repeat every other line of their argument because the storm swallows anything not spat with sufficient venom. Moss does lighten the mood briefly by going over on his ankle, but he gets up again. He's still blaming the fucking grass and the bastard weather while Hen is attempting to set up the picnic under a thrashing tree. Paper plates are abandoned after the first four whip away into the valley, moss barking with amusement. The moment the flasks empty, they start back, shivering between browns and yellows, greys and blacks. When she was a kid, they'd spread a blanket, fly a kite, hen with her crisps and mum with her wine. Meanwhile, Moss passes at speed. It's unclear whether he's tripped again or elected from the depths of his drunkenness to roll down the hill, narrowly skirting a couple of crags, but beating her to the bottom with a wet thud. He loses some time in a protracted session of all fours, vomiting though, and Hen, jogging suddenly and laughing slightly hysterically, overtakes him, crawling up Mum's gravel path. He wasn't a big drinker when he met her, took some training up. Even so, in terms of units, she'd have lapped him today as he sleeps scrunched like a towel. Vinegar apple budget cider, easy drinking soft blonde beer, quality ale full of character. Real drinkers take it steady in the window seat where she used to sit as a kid and dream of the city. Steady the rain on the grey garden and the greyer road. They're not awake at the same time till it's nearly midnight again. It's often like this. Someone has smashed a glass. Someone has broken a plate. Hen has been flipping bottle tops at Moss's open mouth and toasting near misses. One for me. One for me. One for me. A ricochet off one of his teeth sees him finally sit up by degrees, slandering his liver, his stomach and so on. His turn to be the sober one. When's your mum back again? Tomorrow, Hen says, sinking a chaser. You're not going to leave it like this. She sends her eyes around the room in long, looping orbits. The side table on its side, the snacks abandoned halfway, spills and ash and empties on the carpet, empties on the record player, the bookshelf, empties balanced on top of empties. She's going to kill us, Hen. It's an intriguing proposition. Hen doesn't say. She'll think we're alcoholics. She'll say we need help. But none from Moss already folded back into himself. What would Mum think? Mum, who hates lightweights, who introduced her to spirits, neat, on ever more regular special occasions. Homeschooled Hen gradually realising how lonely she had been out here with no other adults. 
someone to drink with. She's humming dreamily as she reassesses the damage how long it would take to fix because if hen taught moss to drink, moss taught hen to function, for better or worse. Let us see, she says, and sleeps. Empties on top of empties on top of empties. Mum's text from the taxi wakes her. Moss cantering past gets her up. Every surface fucking gleaming. And here he comes again, cloth in one hand, spray in the other, pride all over. She'll never know, he promises. Plus a kiss that tastes of mint. What did you do with the empties? She'll never find them, he smiles. There's one bottle left, thought we could neck it, then play happy families. Handing it over. She turns to the light pouring in through the window, the hills almost purring as they dry in the heat. The leaves burning green along outstretched branches, the gloss of the grass as if shampooed, conditioned and combed. Not a cloud in the traitor sky. She watches the bottle fly free from her hand, crashing through it, falling now and smashing itself. A jagged red stain on the path. What the fuck? Moss asks, reasonably. What are we going to say? Thank you, Jan Horbach, and thank you, Neil Noon. More music now. This is Kieran Dacey, who performed as a accompanist in our first podcast about the colour blue. Now he takes centre stage, joined by Harriet Rose on the fiddle.
Thank you, Kieran Dacey and Harriet Rose. It isn't easy being green, sang Kermit, though that frog was so stupid he stayed in the saucepan as it gradually got hotter and hotter till he boiled. These days, we'd steam or flash fry him to retain that much more flavour. Kermit tasted bland as those boiled vegetables in the 1980s. So now, my green is a dark green. Robin Hood and Hearn the Hunter, the Green Man, and a bonfire in the forest after dark. Coniferous green and stories. Always stories. Charades? Oh, not charades. I hate that game. I never win, you know that. An awkward silence fell over the room. No one was quite sure if this was light-hearted banter or a cover for something more deep and sinister. They didn't want to say it out loud, but what if the rumors were true? And what if she had found out? No, come on, it's not winning the matters. It's, it's just fun to play, said Karen. It's just a silly fun game to get everyone up and playing together. She gave a reluctant sigh. Oh, okay then. But everybody could tell Medusa really wasn't happy about this. And although unknown to her at the time, most people were also thinking, Karen's a bit of a dick. Karen had a Medusa a bag full of bits of paper with titles on them. She reached in grabbed one and read it. Sound of music. Oh, great. Nuns, Nazis and smug children. None of my favorite things. Medusa composed herself and tried to look at least vaguely interested in the game. Well, snapped Karen with an unnecessary sense of urgency. Is it a book, a film or a song? 
Medusa shook her head. Oh, it's, um... Now you can't tell us, said Karen, now affecting what was clearly a forced laugh to try and lighten the mood. You know the rules, silly. No speaking. You have to do the actions. Now this was a big problem. Medusa, whilst not really enjoying the party, didn't want to turn everyone to stone. She remembered how at last year's office party, Stephen had got so drunk he passed out of the toilets. That anecdote, as vague and as pointless as it was, had kept the office in a frenzy for weeks. By contrast, the mass petrification of her entire department, that would keep them going for months. Her only option was to act things out with her back to everyone, which as a result makes the game a lot harder for all concerned. Keeping herself facing away from the crowd, she started to make the gesture of a film camera off to her side. There were a few awkward giggles from her teammates, as far as they knew neither famous boxing matches or pornos were normally in the game of charades. But after several painfully long moments, someone cautiously called out, Is it a film? And several people breathed a sigh of relief. Yes! Yeah, it's a film, said Medusa, clearly already fed up. She held up four fingers, indicating the length of the film title, but then all of a sudden she was stumped. Using hand gestures for the, that was easy enough. But beyond that, she couldn't think of how to act out the rest of the title without somebody getting killed. Finally, it occurred to her, everyone knows the clip of Julie Andrews with her arms stretched out, spinning around in a lush green meadow. Now, obviously, the spinning around bit would end very badly here, but at least she could do the arms. Even people who've never seen the film know the bit with the arms. So there she was, her back to everyone, stood up straight, and arms stretched out as wide as she could be. Snakes on a plane! shouted Jeff. Several of her asps flipped around in Jeff's direction. He already looked a bit embarrassed, but they gave him a long, cold, hard stare just to make the point very clear. She gave her head a quick shake, all of one of them slid back, and this time adopting a more sedate pose so as not to distract her teammates. Colin, she said in a hushed voice. Just let it go. Colin eventually slid back, but everyone could tell he was still very annoyed. Well, now what? That didn't work, so what else could she do? Just then, she noticed the wall in front of her. The light was casting a shadow over it, and she could see Colin enthusiastically bobbing around like he always did. Suddenly, she realized there was a way she could play this stupid game. Her teammates could hear her muttering something to the asps. Then she pointed to her head, and one by one, they arranged themselves into a series of large bumps. Then with two fingers, she pretended her hand was a little person walking over the bumps. No, wait, 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 that's not allowed, said a very concerned Karen. Before Medusa could respond, Jeff bellowed out, I'll give her a rest, Karen. It's supposed to be fun, right? Just silly fun game, right? Karen fell silent. Medusa continued to act out the tiny person walking over the mounds of snakes and people began shouting out vaguely possible answers. Walk the line! Mountain climbing? 
hill walking? She gave a thumbs up and pointed to one of the snake hills. Hills? Hills. The hills of eyes! Shouted Jeff. Colin flipped around and stared at Jeff again, but he wasn't angry this time. He just stared and stared until Jeff and him locked eyes. Then he shut his eyes really tight and wiggled around. Jeff was fixated on Colin, trying desperately to decipher the little snake's clue. Hills of eyes. Hills of shut eyes. Eyes wide shut. No, 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 sorry. No, none of that. Um, not eyes. Not eyes wiggling. Hills, hills are wiggling. The fuck are they wiggling for? Because they're alive. Hills are alive. Hills are alive. Hills are alive. Then he roared of absolute certainty. The sound of music. The room erupted into cheers. Medusa victoriously threw a fist in the air, and Colin bowed at Jeff. Karen clapped politely and walked over to the bar. Several games and many drinks later, Karen had decided the party was not worthy of her attention. She played with her phone, she checked Facebook in the hope of a mild distraction, and took some selfies of her looking much more excited than she really was. Before not too long, she was grabbing whoever passed by on the way to the bar and conjoling them into taking group photos, over-enthusiastically demanding that they all show what a wonderful time they were having. Medusa wandered over to the bar. One more quick gin and tonic, she thought, then she'd make her excuses and go home. Karen grabbed Medusa, her phone already fired up. But unlike all the others, Medusa didn't pose. She didn't make a pouty face or a crazy fun expression. She just looked really bored. Now, the party hadn't been as bad as she was expecting, but still, she'd had about enough of it. Enough of the people gossiping, and mostly enough of Karen and her endless rumours. She just wanted to go home and go to bed. Karen looked at herself and Medusa on the phone screen, and could see that all was not going well. And it's so often the case, when too much drinks flowed, she felt something emotional start to well up inside of her. She hugged Medusa, and tried to sound a little less drunk than she really was. Look, I don't know what people have told you, but I, honestly, I think you're great. I, we should hang out sometime, you know? Get to know each other better, you know? I just, I'm just, I just like worry and, um, Karen tailed off. She could feel a tear forming in her eye and realized she was now being far more open than she had intended, far more open than she ever felt comfortable with. She took a deep breath and sheepishly backed away from the hug. Medusa paused for a moment to consider what Karen had said, and then she responded, you know what, love? You worry far too much about what people think. She smiled at Karen and wiped the tear from her cheek just before it all set to stone. <laughs> Colin gave a wry little smile the way snakes sometimes do, and happily curled up for a nap. None of the rumours were true as it happened, but regardless of that, Karen really was a bit of a dick. Evening, evening. I, uh, I brought this jacket especially because I don't have loads of green clothes. 
I have a jumper, woolly jumper, which is nice and green. But otherwise, I thought, you know, when you're on stage, get the jacket out. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? This is the moment where you, you, you had a bit to drink. You know, it's a bank holiday. And then you get up here. Everything's facing the other way. The lights are in your face. The audience are looking. And then you look in your pocket. And Oh, by the way, an hour into short stories, you know, sat listening, you... Um, you know, you, you get a bit antsy, right? You know, you, you, the, the bladder start filling up and then you think, God, I, I do, you know, I, I, I've been here for a while. I haven't had a cigarette in, in 45 minutes at least. And it's okay for me because I'm sat by the door, but you guys must be, must be bursting. So I'm, I'm going to keep it brief. Uh, we'll, we'll do a wee story and we'll get on. Uh, this is called uh, Constituent. Constituent. It, it, it's, it's meant to be, um, you know, stop. For the desk of Carolyn Lucas, MP, uh, it's difficult to admit um, a married man, but the truth will out. Uh, Mrs. Lucas, I fantasize about you constantly. <laughs> mm? Lads, eh? You know what I'm talking about, huh? When I think of you, Caroline, my Caroline, a cool breeze washes over me. Close harmonies ring in my ear and uh, my mind becomes uh, candy floss. I, I see us at the neglected shingle before the marina, your lithe birch rod directing me, here, pick up that bicycle wheel, here, feed that drunk. Here, give my horse a peppermint sweet. And when, when I wake to myself at, at the dining table, I'm, I'm talking erosion with my uh, wife's brother, I'm holding up a potato salad and offering it to the cat. You never listen to him. You never listen to him, she pines. And uh, yes, that's probably fair. Dreams of you slosh like seawater in my ear. It's difficult to hear anything when four Kemptown barbershoppers are pacing behind us on the Max Miller singing, where did your long hair go? Your hand and mine. Snapping fingers. When did you become so green? It's fair also. My wife married a lazy man. Uh, and, and she liked it that way. Uh, but uh, then you came and all the suited humdrum Norman Bakers of this world were swept away and the two of us were face to face for the first time. Binman strike, 2014. The streets were covered in crap. <laughs> My heart leaps at the thought of it. I faltered as you passed, cropped hair and a tweed dress, raging animal sexuality. <laughs> I gave you my name via petition sheet, and you sent me your letters and uh, brochures with suggested photographs, ensconced now under socks in a drawer. I came to accept that we couldn't meet, and yet, your career, forbidding it, when you point 
your megaphone at me across the crowded picket and strip me of my high-vis with your eyes. <laughs> I hear the sweet nothing spoken only for me and I smile. Afterwards, I go home. Bad as it is, I, I, I pass my wife a sympathetic smile and then I canvas, I tweet and strive harder, still harder for the environment, for the city and for you, my Caroline. Know simply that my fantasies belong with you forever and always, as does my vote. Thank you very much. Well, <laughs> thank you, Alan Goody, and thank you, Joe Bedford. Now we arrive at our final section. Tonight we finish Wilder Stories with two songs. Thank you very much for joining us this evening and listening, and thank you to all our storytellers, Sess and Graham Greenness, Alexandra Losker, Eben Flo, Jan Horbach, Neil Noon, Kieran Dacey and Harriet Rose, Alan Goody, Joe Bedford and Neil McBride. Tonight's music was composed and performed live on Waterphone by Todd Jordan. Wilder Stories is curated by Helen Jewell and produced by The Old Market. So if you'll indulge me, I will sing us out, but first... Here is Neil McBride. Miss Kelly, fine thing that you were then And fine thing I'd say you are now well, we played together, but only in orchestras. I was from the country and you were from town. And I'll never forget the sight of your black bra under your white school blouse. And although it's over 30 years ago, the memory still gets me aroused. You were a woman at 17, and I am your boy of 11. But when you smiled in my general direction Your dancing eyes took me to heaven Oh, I never stood a chance with her Oh, I never got to dance with her Oh, Donna Marie Discovered my onanistic tendencies, they came later to me. But had I known what to do then, as I know it now, my first would have been to Donna Marie. When, as a rule, the boys at my school were drooling all over page three, well, way above Sam Fox or Linda Lusardi, I wanted a kiss from sweet Donna Marie. On that violin that you played so sweetly, you fiddled 
but never with me. The thing that has haunted me, she never wanted me. Bittersweet Donna Marie. Oh, I was captured by her jet black hair. Oh, before I knew I had a pair. I stood down by the motorway Waiting for the RAC The engine died on my four-wheel drive Somewhere south of Leeds Late for work too many times Today's the final straw So I'm watching the cars come passing by For an hour or more and the drivers' faces all the same Maps of misery Not a single smile nor a single laugh As far as the eye can see Now maybe I'd smoked too much Or the fumes got in my brain But sitting on that grassy verge I think I went insane and I swear, right there, I had a vision And I shuffle back in time To the very birth of this M1 in 1959 And I felt the fear of 400 trees Scattered all around As the men they came with their big machines 
to level out the ground. Then clear as day, I saw a workman talking to a tree. And the tree, she spoke right back to him in the voice of an old lady. Then he ups and runs across to his boss. The foreman swaggers towards her. What have you to say, he says, before I give the order? We are the last of a great old wood. Been here a thousand years. We've seen the world around us change. Though we thought we'd always be here. Yet now you men are growing fast and few of us remain. If you kill us now, I can't explain how, but England will never be the same. The foreman laughs a bitter laugh to hear this talking tree. Mention this to the planning team, it's be the end of me. Well, you may be the last of your kind And you may speak the truth But to let this project fall behind It's more than my job's worth Then around the tree There came five cranes Of yellow painted steel Brought down the tree, the tree was slain and Chopped up on the field I stood down by the motorway Waiting for the RAC The engine died on my four-wheel drive Somewhere south of Lee